Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. How much worse will this get from a public health standpoint? And will the president's playbook work from a political standpoint? Really, it's really regrettable to think that a global pandemic has to be turned into a red state, blue state issue, but that's the world we live in right now. Please don't turn this into some kind of culture war, a political divisive issue where certain uh, left-leaning people are wearing masks, where right-leaning people are not wearing masks. We don't get to work. You don't get to work. Freedom is but this is an election year. And it's unwillingly that we're taking unemployment. We want to go back to work. Seeing really a stunning gap between the Republicans and the Democrats about their conventions that are coming up this summer. President Trump threatening to pull the Republican National Convention from North Carolina if the governor there cannot guarantee now that full attendance would be possible. The president tweeted that mail-in ballots could be, quote, substantially fraudulent. However, fact checkers say there is no evidence that mail-in ballots are linked to voter fraud. The latest Fox presidential campaign poll shows Joe Biden with an eight-point lead over Donald Trump. The president is feuding with governors, with Democrats. States are continuing to reopen. Some He's seemingly eager for confrontation. number of deaths nationally over religious One institutions. We're more than three months into the coronavirus crisis upending daily life, and national political correspondent David Siders is here to talk about how this public health threat became a political monster. I'm Eugene Daniels sitting in for Scott Bland, and this is Nerdcast. I wanted to talk to you this week because, you know, we're three months, um, give or take, to coronavirus disrupting life in the uh, in the states. And the longer that we see it go on, we're seeing states start to kind of reopen at different timelines. And there's more and more disagreement about how we should be doing that and how states and cities should be functioning right now. I think I've been surprised, maybe that's, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't be at the extent to which you know, COVID-19 has become politicized. You know, we live in this crazy, divisive time, but it's still kind of shocking, like, especially as we continue to see foundational political systems shaped by it, right? Voting and how many states are are moving to mail-in voting, um, how many primaries were canceled, right? You wrote um, a piece about that this week. Tell me about that. Oh, this was about the the president's reaction to mail-in voting, and and Trump Mm -hmm. is a, a critic of mail-in voting. Uh, but I think you know, what was new maybe was the pointed way in which he's talking about uh, rigged elections and voter fraud, uh, unsubstantiated claims, and one he's been making for for years. Uh, but now I think in the context of the election is, as you, as you talk about this being such a hyper-partisan issue, it is being seen as, as a, a red flag, I think, by a lot of Democrats and, and some Republicans. Yeah, for for those Democrats that you talk to, um, you know, 
they talk about how, you know, President Trump said this would be the greatest rigged election in history um, and that they are really concerned maybe that he, if he were to lose to Joe Biden, who's the presumptive nominee for the Democrats right now, um, that, you know, he would either contest the election or maybe not leave, which is which is kind of wild to think about, right? Yeah, I think so. And if you if you talk to the Trump campaign, they say this is baseless conspiracy talk. And, you know, you, the Trump administration uh, internally is preparing in the way that the law requires for a, a transition should Biden win. But, you know, Democrats aren't without any reason to think about this. Trump was talking about I think it was the last debate in 2016 where he kind of famously said he or he declined to commit to acknowledging the results of the election if if he were to lose. And, and he's been talking about rigged elections and voter fraud ever since. So, you know, I'm not sure that people think that he's necessarily going to lock the doors or something and they're going to have <laughs> to come in with, you know, a SWAT team. But I, I do think that there is talk among Democrats about what happens if an election is close in a state and he, you know, launches a court challenge, that that kind of thing. And I think that's the what concerns them more. Yeah, you, you talked to the head of the Wisconsin Democratic Party, and he said basically the only way to make sure that this doesn't happen is for Democrats to like win and win big in those, especially in those swing states. Have you been hearing that from other? Yeah, he's definitely not alone in that, and of course, there's been some pushback on that. I think you know for a while this this idea has existed as an undercurrent for a long time, and I think at one point it was being called like the the Bill Maher um, fear or something <laughs> because he would ask his guests yeah. about it. And and I, I think was upset about the idea that the Democrats should have to win big, seeing it. Why move your own goalposts, right? You you should just have to win by as many votes as prescribed by the Electoral College. But but that's not how Democrats are necessarily viewing it. Right, right. Like it reminds me of that saying: "Take Trump seriously, not literally." In some ways, this is what you're saying, right? He, he's a master of the kind of magic trick, sleight of hand, calling out things that are going to get a lot of attention and distract his critics in a way that, that he wants. But at the same time, there's always a little bit of a disconnect between what the Trump administration is saying and what Trump really feels and what he's saying. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I think that's that's broader than just the mail-in you know, ballot issue. What you're raising is is probably the the whole thesis of the the Trump presidency, right? And one I think he'll lean into not just on mail-in voting, but also on coronavirus. Uh, we certainly saw it before. And that is you know, that he is not of the establishment, that he's the outsider, that everything else is rigged. Uh, and it's remarkable coming from somebody who's the president. Um, and yet that's his brand and his image. And so when, when you wonder why is there a different view in how we look at coronavirus or why does the science come under dispute. I mean, it's it's this whole idea of being not of the institution, not of the academy, and kind of positioning yourself as counter to all of that. And I think that's, you know, what makes Trump appealing to a lot of his base. And uh, you know, tactically, I, I think that's what he leans into. And yeah, David, this piece that we're talking about here has a headline that was pretty striking, I think, like, Trump sees a rigged election ahead. Democrats see a constitutional crisis in the making. Like, those two sentences, that that feels very concerning for a lot of Americans. But when some Democrats say they see a constitutional crisis in the making, what do they they mean? Is is that a real concern that a big group of Democrats have in the party right now? Yeah, I mean, I think some of them do, enough to at least 
talk about the possibilities. I think the predominant concern is more a, a strategic one that that they may have to deal with court challenges. Um, you know that that Trump's rhetoric may depress people from voting, which in itself is a, a big concern. I, I don't think people are talking about mostly about revolutionary kind of uh, outcomes. That being said, I mean, I, I think you talk to people who say the risk of something, a constitutional crisis, or the likelihood of a constitutional crisis is very, very low. But the potential damage of a constitutional crisis is very high. <laughs> and so because of that, you should take this seriously. You know, and it's, you run into people who talk about Rutherford Hayes or the, the Wormley Hotel. I mean, the, the, these things are not totally without precedent. Um, so I do think there is some some somber thinking going on. Uh, at the same time, I, I think more more likely you hear people talking about why they think feel they need to run up the totals in November. Yeah. The COVID-19 crisis, the, the response to that, has become a huge part of messaging for both Democrats and Republicans. They're using it in different ways, obviously. But how might each of these ways that they're messaging the response, how might that shape the ways the party work in the future and kind of are and exist in the future? Well, in the short term, I think it's so hard to know, right? Because if you'd looked at this two months ago, this was a public health crisis and being messaged as a public health crisis. And so at the time, it looked like lots of people dead. And then you know, Biden used to talk about the dual crises, the economic crisis. It was just lots and lots of people unemployed in the stock market cratering. But how that moves forward in the future depends a lot on what happens to the virus. And I think you talk to pollsters right now and they say, well, this is an interesting snapshot in time, but... You know, this is just a baseline. We have no idea what this is going to look like because the polls will change dramatically or might, depending on, on how the coronavirus response goes. Particularly the shift to the economy, I think, is viewed with some concern by Democrats because if elections are primarily about how people view the economy, they don't necessarily require the economy to be good. It just needs to be getting better. And so... Mm-hmm. If the economy by November is is seen as getting better, uh, Trump Trump may benefit. Yeah, I mean, you know, right now you think about the millions of people who have been filing for unemployment. You know, um, you know, people are losing their jobs in almost every single medium of of work that there is. How are these jobs going to come back? Right, like there's a there's a sense from people who are excited, maybe not excited, but but um, hopeful that the economy is going to come roaring back. They talk about the possibility of people getting called or furlough as soon as all this is over. Jobs opening back up, stores and and shops opening back up. But then there's other people who, and other economists who are concerned. Um, I've seen numbers as much as like you know thirty percent of the jobs lost may not come back. Right. So there's all these. There's these different trains of thought, and those come in and and are typically viewed through political lenses. No, I think you're right. I want. Oh, hmm. I'm curious. How do you think that will end up uh, shaping how people view these two candidates, or how do you think it's shaping them right now? Yeah, I, you know, I think I feel like it depends. We we've been on the road together, and I just feel like when you talk to people, they are always. It's hard to find someone who doesn't already have a strong opinion about a lot of the people ha- that exist within our public space right now, right? Like, 
everyone has a very strong opinion about Trump. He's not one of those people that you might like him a little bit. You either really like him or you or you really, really don't. And I find Joe Biden in that kind of the, that same way. And so this election feels so strange in that while COVID-19 is such a huge part of how people are viewing it, it's also about personality, right? Like it, it reminds me of 2016 a lot in that people are looking at it like, who do I dislike the least, right? Like who is the person that I can like, you know, put my hand to my nose and, and put a check mark by their name? I think that's probably the, uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. A big advantage for Biden is that he's so much less disliked than Hillary Clinton, uh, right? You look at right. polls from 2016, Trump beat Hillary Clinton with these people who don't like either candidate. Uh, Biden now is up by just a massive margin with that subgroup. So, But it's interesting, the idea that the coronavirus, as much as we thought it might change the entire election, it seems to be what, what you're saying is that it just reinforced existing views and maybe hardened them, um, which sounds right to me, but also very discouraging. I feel like I feel like that a lot about politics sometimes. It's like, oh, that sounds right. But oh, damn, that's really sad, actually. So much of the division that we're talking about with COVID-19 and how people think about the coronavirus is where it actually is, like where are the places that it's hitting the hardest. There's data that shows that it has been hitting, you know, traditionally what we think of as blue states or blue cities the hardest, which, you know, in my mind, further feeds into that division, right? Like if it's happening a lot in New York City for example, and not in St. Ange, South Dakota, which my, is where my partner's from, the people in St. Ange, South Dakota see it as a New York City problem, right? And then you have leaders on the left and leaders on the right who are also kind of seeing it in that viewpoint. So it does feel like it's two Americas dealing with coronavirus in a different way. I think you're right. Pew has some numbers that that are fairly startling uh, right along the lines you talk about. The of the 92,000 deaths by May 20th, uh, Pew has 75,000 of them coming in Democratic-held congressional districts. That's that's an amazing disparity, and I think points to you know, exactly this kind of difference. And we're going to see it highlighted. We kind of already are, but you know, think about the Democratic convention. You know, Democrats are worried about gathering, and you know, Trump is, you know, give me an open field. Let's uh, right. let's get together. Um, and and you see it in the grocery store too. You know, who's wearing a mask is all of a sudden a, a a political statement. Yeah, you know, I, I wasn't sure at the outset how this crisis, I don't think anybody was, how, how it would, hmm. you know, you look at people who study long-term crises, for example, like climate change, and I think they'll tell you, we could have seen this coming, you know, for a mile away. Look who owns a Prius. It's, uh, it's you know, the <laughs> coronavirus's mask, right? It's, uh, it's not your Republican in, oh, I don't know, South Dakota. Um, or the truck. It's a similar thing. Who has a pickup truck? It's a it's a statement thing. And also, I think the response and how the electorate perceives it is very similar in that kind of partisan way. It's not you know, this was not a, a hurricane that came and and would seem to have no political implications. Uh, this was more like a slow moving crisis like climate change that that is viewed and maybe because of the luxury of of time is viewed with all of these Partisan building blocks, I guess. Right. And in terms of our discussion about the kind of different realities of experiencing the coronavirus as a health phenomenon, an economic phenomenon, a a political phenomenon, I'm interested to see what you think about how that might affect not just the presidential race and how people view COVID-19, but also congressional races, right? You you have these blue areas in the congressional space that are being hit harder by COVID-19. 
And does that make them think differently about the people that are in office, or or does it just reinforce what they've already believed? I, I have to think the reinforcing part is um, probably predominantly right. It may be though that this has advantages for both parties in their among their areas, as you say, right? The Democrats in the liberal areas and the Republicans in theirs, and and the reason might be that it affirms something that the voters thought they knew about the president but weren't sure. So if you're in a rural area and coronavirus came and you did not see a huge public health impact in your immediate area, and yet your governor um, say, well, Minnesota is an example. You have a Democratic governor, but a state with a lot of red areas. And so if you're in one of those red, say, mining areas up in northeastern Minnesota, and you see these, you know, policies that in your mind are made for cities, not for rural areas, I think that that could feed into resentment for Democrats. And to the extent that the president and Democratic governors are feuding, uh, could increase your you know, likelihood to support the president because you would see a lot of economic harm uh, because your industries in the outstate areas depend on people living in cities and yet not see commensurate public health benefits. Uh, And then on the flip side, if you're a Democrat living in a city and you see people dying, you know, maybe that for suburban voters, I I could see a, I think it's reasonable that somebody who's been affected by this, who thinks they'll be affected by this, says, you know, we put up with a president we didn't necessarily approve of, but we put up with him for whatever reasons they were, probably the economy. Um, and if it's if that's not going the right way in November, that's a reason to leave the president. Uh, so I can see this really benefiting both. Um, at least that's my take. I'm curious what you what you're seeing. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, so in terms of political strategy, for a lot of Democrats, there was a thought and maybe a little bit of a hope, right? That that the way that Trump handled the crisis would be the undoing of his presidency, right? The jury is still very much out on that, but you've been writing about some early state polls that paint maybe some pretty good news for President Trump right now. Uh, Well, at least they paint a picture of opportunity. Um, Mm. I mean, Trump is losing uh, in just about every battleground state poll and national poll going back for months. And so we should make no mistake that Biden right now, I I think you'd say, is the front runner, um, given the polling. But Trump has all sorts of money and a pretty sophisticated turnout machine and voters like we talked about earlier in some of these areas that you know where coronavirus may be or his response to it may be motivating. And I think the idea, you know, looking back at the beginning was this going to be the the downfall of Trump. It sure looked bad, right? The pillar of his candidacy mm-hmm. was the economy. And so it was always going to be low unemployment and a surging stock market. And like in a day, uh, the stock market went away. He no longer had that. And then it was week after week of jobless claims. Uh, that does, you know, did not then and still does not bode well for Trump. But there are some analysts, both Democratic and Republican, who think that you know, in the end, if, if the public health emergency abates and this becomes singularly about the economic response. Well, then Trump has an opportunity to wipe away everything else from his presidency and talk exclusively about the economy. And on that issue, you know, I think they see a better a better standing for him or a, a better chance. 
And the flip side, of course, is that we have a resurgence in October and deaths go through the roof and, and unemployment down again. And then you know, it's probably goodbye. But but at least now I think there is an opportunity for Trump on the economy. Yeah. And I mean, I'm thinking about how he's trying to play the optics of this. President Trump, his 2020 motto is keep America great. And he's also kind of rolled out transition to greatness. But if people aren't feeling that in the economy, you know, that doesn't seem like it's a good thing for him. Those don't sound good. And based on the reporting that you guys have done, that we've done at Politico and talking to health experts, the the idea that the economy is going to bounce back enough or what we can think of as enough for President Trump to kind of give himself a pat on the back or a good job, you know, it, it seems kind of hard to see right now. I'm curious what you think about this. You talk to a lot of people. So do you think that voters have the attention span. Uh, you know, Liza, Ryan Lizza was at the White House the other day asking, what would be the acceptable uh, level of, of deaths? And whatever you think of the question, there is some interesting question to be had about, you know, personally, what do you accept as an acceptable level of risk? Do you go to the grocery store in a normal way and go about your life in a normal way if one person is going to die from a virus? Probably. Do you do it if 10 or 20 or 50 or 100? Probably. Uh, but there's at some point, there's a number where you find that risk untenable. Uh, but I, what I wonder is, even if deaths were to say plateau and stay at the level they are right now, I'm not, I don't know what the American attention span is for any issue, um, even this issue, if it were to, if that number were to stay the same every day, um, and I, I don't know the answer to that. I, so, what do you, you, what do you think? I mean, I'm thinking about that first question you asked about voters' attention spans. There's just so much going on nowadays, right? You have a, this controversy, that controversy. They, they're always being piled on top of each other. And you have a president who has proven he is really good at weaponizing almost anything he wants. And I guess none of us truly knows right now what either the health or the economic outlook will be in November or even next week. So we'll see. Anyway, I, I could literally talk to you about this all day, but I'll let you go back to being uh, Mr. Principal of the homeschool. <laughs> hey, thank you. Have a good one, David. Yeah, likewise. This is nice talking to you. <laughs> Here are a few other things I've been watching in the news this week. The biggest thing that comes to mind is the killing of George Floyd in Minnesota. Video of police officers kneeling on his back and him yelling out, I can't breathe, went viral and have revitalized the political conversation around the Black Lives Matter movement, over-policing and acceptable force from police officers. Also this week, we hit a grim milestone. More than 100,000 Americans have died from COVID-19. Finally, President Trump and the governor of North Carolina have been beefing about whether or not the Republican National Convention can be held in the state amid COVID-19 and a ban on large gatherings there. The president has threatened to pull the convention unless the governor lets the show go on. And that's our show. Our producer is Annie Reese, our senior producer is Jenny Ament, and our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. See you soon, and thanks for listening. <laughs>